This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. How are you today? I am doing just fine today. It's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that kind of day where it's so nice outside, it feels very sad to be working inside. Mm-hmm. I agree. I've. It's really sad. We had a really nice um, patio umbrella that kind of like hung over our patio furniture, and it broke a couple months ago and we don't have any other umbrellas. So if I were to go outside and work outside on the furniture, I'd be doing it in direct sunlight. And that's actually mm-hmm. would get a little toasty at that point. So I cannot work outside until we get a new umbrella. But wow. Yeah. You get, so yeah, problems. you gotta limit it. Yeah, the problems. <laughs> problems we have in Arizona. Coach. Yeah, so sad. So sad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you get your, uh, requisite amount of sun exposure, get that vitamin D going and then flee. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, hopefully you will get an umbrella before it actually warms up to a temperature that would be unpleasant to sit in. Yeah. Yeah. But right now it's good. We're good. Right. We're not, we're not at May yet. We're at the perfect time of year right now in Arizona. Right. Now is now it's February. You can sit in the sun and it's and it could be if you're in like direct sunlight, depending on the day, no breeze. You could be thinking, oh, it's kind of a warm mm-hmm. it's kind of a warm sun sunbeam there. It's got me. Yeah, you get to April and May and it's like, I'm cooking. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like it's like the ant under the the magnifying glass. That's what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Well, speaking of uh, sitting outside and relaxing, I thought today we could talk about vacation homes, especially because of two things. Number one, everybody's been locked inside their houses for months on end and is probably are probably thinking about going on vacation or how they might go about going on vacation. And number two, uh, interest rates are so low. Apparently, everybody is buying houses uh, or thinking about buying houses. And so we could, you know, maybe fill them in on how to do that or not do that. And then number three, because we just got done with uh, Prop 19 in California, which if anybody was unaware, part of Prop 19 was to say that if you had a transfer of real estate between a parent and children, you could no longer shelter that transfer of real estate from a reassessment of the value of the property for property tax purposes, which in California is a big deal. So people who are actually licensed to practice law in that state tell me. And so we just saw a tremendous amount of real estate passing hands, including vacation homes passing hands. So it's got us thinking about vacation homes. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people, yeah, especially this year with you know, everyone just so anxious. We're really ready to travel finally this year, but they still might be concerned about safety and how to do it the safest way. I mean, just buying a second home, a vacation home is one way to do it pretty safe, I guess. So it's it's definitely something that we see a lot with our clients owning vacation property, especially, you know, we talk about Arizona. It's so perfect right now, weather-wise, but come July, August, it's a little toasty. So a lot of our clients like to head to San Diego, Southern California, they might get um, 
uh, condo over there. We see a lot of clients who have vacation homes in Mexico. Um, so you might see something down there or just wherever. Maybe you do want to go up north during the summer and go go up there instead. Montana, we see a lot of Montana stuff, uh, Minnesota. So wherever you've got a vacation home, um, that's it's definitely something that you need to consider and kind of wrap up as part of your estate plan. It's not just this separate thing. Um, and especially depending on what the goals are for the family. Do you just want to keep it during your lifetime or do you want to pass it to your kids? Do you want this to be the forever family vacation home? And if that's a thing, then you really do need to consider it and make it a part of your estate plan. So I think the first step that people really need to consider is where is your vacation home, right? So here in Tucson, if you are in Tucson and you're trying to escape the heat for the summer and you buy a cabin up in the White Mountains, okay, that's really easy. We're, we're dealing with one jurisdiction law. We're dealing with just Arizona. Um, everyone needs to remember that wherever the real estate sits, that is the law that governs that property. So if you are buying a condo in California, California law is going to govern that property, even though you are a primary resident of Arizona. If you buy the condo down in Mexico, it is going to be Mexican law that governs it. So you really have to take that in consideration in looking at um, potential taxes, um, if you pass away, what happens to the property. So if you own real estate, just simply in your own individual name in California, you might have to have a California probate if that property after um, when you pass upon your death, you might have to have a Mexican probate. So you really have to take all these things into consideration when kind of looking at how do we incorporate this and how do we make this easy and simple transitions if you want this property to stay in your family lineage. Indeed. And and in terms of the methods that you are allowed or should think about using to own the property to begin with, because every jurisdiction is a little bit different. Thankfully, uh, within the United States, uh, from state to state, the, the methods of owning real estate do not differ enormously. Um, I'm choosing my words somewhat carefully there, but it's for the most part similar from state to state. Obviously, every state does things slightly differently. Every state has their own rules and nuances, but as a very general proposition, um, states tend to be quite consistent from one state to the other. Countries, however, are not that way. Um, so owning real estate, say in Canada, if you're from uh, Arizona and you're trying to get up to the north during the summertime, say you're going to Vancouver or somewhere else very pleasant during the summertime, uh, owning real estate in Canada is different from owning real estate in the United States, even though Canada as a somewhat very general and, and overly simplistic uh, statement has similar laws to the United States. Then you go south and Mexico has completely different laws as well. And so the way that you can own the property, the effect of owning the property, the taxation of owning the property, the way that you can leave the property at your death, all really depends very much on where you're buying that property and you're and you're 100% right. Wherever that property is located, wherever that real estate is located, that's the law that applies. It doesn't really matter where you're from. The law of where the real estate is applies to that real estate. You cannot pick it up and move it. 
uh, and therefore you cannot change the laws that apply to it. So whatever that local jurisdiction is, that's it. But let's just say uh, for like an easy example then, uh, and you you kind of started out this way, Rachel, let's say I buy a vacation home within my state. So I'm not I'm not leaving the state to get a vacation home. I'm just buying a, buying a vacation home in my state. What is your kind of go-to advice for clients in that situation? My go-to advice uh, would be, well, first just ask them, What's, what's the plan, right? Again, are we passing it? I'm assuming we're going to want to pass this down to, to children. So if we're going to pass it down to kids, um, I first want to ask them who's using the property really, really regularly, right? And so if it's just, let's just say mom and dad, mom and dad are using the property regularly, kids aren't really using it yet. Maybe down the road, the kids can use it. Um, but right now it's just mom and dad. Um, or are mom and dad renting it? at certain times of the year when they're not using it or they're Airbnb in that property. Um, I want to get an idea of all those questions first, just because I want to know potentially how, what, what type of agreement is going to be the best way to memorialize what they want. So for example, with the Airbnb, the reason why I ask that is because if you have a third party coming into your home and there potentially could be an incident that happens on the property, you want to limit your liability. So in that case, I might recommend putting that property into an LLC instead so we can limit exposure so you don't lose all of your assets because of one, one horrible event that happened. Um, Otherwise, um, if let's say you're not going to be renting out, it's just going to be a family vacation home, I would really recommend putting it in your trust. Um, let's put it into your trust right now so that your trustee controls it so that we don't have to worry about incapacity issues. Um, and then um, it can flow with your estate plan. And then if we want your children to use it upon your passing, let's say you've got several kids and let's hope they all get along. Um, but if even if they don't, then we can memorialize all the terms into the trust agreement on exactly who gets to use the property, how, you know, how, how long they get to use the property for. And then who gets to pay uh, property taxes, who has to pay the uh, any repairs, improvements, things like that. We want to put all of those details into that trust agreement just so that there are no questions. We can try and kind of reduce the amount of bickering between the family as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to think through those mechanics is so critical, right? Because if you don't and people do not get along, then you could be in a situation where really the use of the house is not uh, is not going to happen the way that you had anticipated. So, so let's say you have it in the trust. Uh, who is going to be the trustee? Who has the legal authority to make those decisions? And then the critical next step, where are the funds going to come from to implement those decisions? Because that tends to be how a trustee functions. A, fun a, a trustee really is is the person with the purse strings. And so you want to think about them as the person with the purse strings. If they want to, if you want them to have power, they need to have money. So frequently uh, when we are preparing, say a trust to hold a vacation home, then we also are trying to think about how much money should also go into the trust in order to fund it. And then sometimes as you're pointing out, the use of the rental home is also dependent on beneficiaries chipping in to pay some of those costs in order to defray how much money needs to go into the trust in order just to maintain the property, right? Because if you don't, you know, at like at a very, very base level, if you don't pay property taxes, you're going to lose the property anyways. So there needs to be at least enough money to pay property taxes. 
then there's um, there's the element of if if you are going to rent out the property, how are you going to split the proceeds of those rental uh, of the rental uh, payments? So, for example, house is in a trust. Mom and dad have died. The, the purpose of the trust is to leave it to the kids. Well, the kids now want to rent the house out because they can't be there uh, 365 days out of the year. So when you rent out the house, then how do you div- divvy up those proceeds? Those sorts of things you want to think through. How is the trustee going to act to make that happen? Then there's always uh, a, the occasional, sorry, I shouldn't say always, there's there's the occasional client that I have who says, I want uh, such and such child to have a right of first refusal to buy the, the property, or I want such and such a child to rent the property. And I understand where they are coming from, but those are extremely difficult things to enforce. So the reason for that is those kinds of transactions are really contracts and you cannot force a contract on some someone that they haven't agreed to. And if you try to put that, say, into a trust that like, well, so-and-so can rent the property for the rest of their lives as long as they pay you know, whatever rent, it's a little hard to enforce that against them. Um, so it's it creates levels of complexity that I think most clients don't think about because they're not thinking about how how challenging will this be to administer in the future? Because the idea of saying like, well, so-and-so can just rent, they're supposed to be able to rent the property for some period of time. The idea is very simple, but when you really start to break it down in legal terms, it becomes really hard to implement. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's where some people start complaining about the lawyers, right? Like you're creating issues that we never had. Well, we're just thinking about the potential issues down the road that you really just don't want to think about because right now we're a happy family, but sometimes the family can have some arguments and we want to already have an idea of what's going to happen when those arguments come up. So we're really not Exactly. (laughs) It's the like, well, you will be dead. I will be the one here left when you're dead to try to sort out this problem. So I'm actually writing it for me, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to sort out these problems ahead of time for me because you will be dead. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, like you said, Brian, it's it's really getting down to the nitty gritty. Um, we've seen a lot of people tackle these problems in, in different ways. So for the problem of who gets to use the property and how much, right? So say we've got beautiful property in... Uh, in Hawaii and everyone wants to go to Hawaii and they want to go, especially during really good times of year. So let's say everyone wants to spend the holidays in Hawaii. All right. Well, the property can only really have one family and you've got three families, three, three kids with their families. So who's going to get the property first? So we've seen some clients deal with this um, issue by maybe having just a certain number of days. Every kid gets so many days of year. Now that doesn't really get to the heart of this holiday issue though. So then maybe you could have points, okay? And with the point system, you know, certain days of the year were certain points, holidays would be worth more points. So if you used up, you know, almost all of your points during July, well, you might not be able to get to spend the holidays now in Hawaii. That's one way you could do it. Um, Another way is just doing a lottery, kind of picking names out of a hat on who who gets to use it certain times of the year. We would hope, you know, that again, family members can work things out together, but we always have to plan for uh, things not working out that way. So that's why you can build in these little bit of these systems in place to try and uh, alleviate any of those arguments down the road. 
And then, like you said, uh, in terms of the expenses, that's a big one. Um, we've seen issues come up where the vacation home may be, uh, let's say it's in Arizona, here in Arizona. I live in Arizona, but maybe my sibling does not live in Arizona. So I'm going to get a lot of use out of this vacation property, but my sibling may not. Um, and so when I tell them, oh, hey, the hot water heater broke, you need to cough up $1,000. They may be a little upset since I just used the property five times this year and they didn't get to use it at all. So really having that in the agreement, whether it's going to be split arrangement, whether um, it could be a little bit more determinate on you know who uses it. it, it just needs to be in writing. Same thing goes for improvements. If I'm using the property all the time and I think, hey, I really want to add a pool in the backyard, but my sibling doesn't use it. Okay, well, how are we going to decide who pays for those? Um, and then, like you just said, the regular maintenance, property fees, things like that. Yeah, and I think um, all of those options are good creative options. Um, they don't have to be the first option. So you could say that the first option is everybody's going to agree, right? You could just say everyone is going to agree when they're going to use the property. However, if they cannot agree, this is the method that's going to be used to determine who gets to use the property when. Same thing with expenses. You say everybody is going to pay expenses uh, proportionately or, or equally. But if there's a disagreement, this is how we're going to resolve the disagreement. And even though uh, I think for a lot of our clients, they would say, yeah, it's fine. Like the kids are going to agree on how to do things. When you really start to drill down um, in most families, there is some there are some topics that are difficult for family members to always agree on. Right. Like if you if you sort of took a poll of most of our clients and said, you know, do your kids always agree on where to go on vacation together? There's a chance that a fraction of them says so probably like, you know, like a bell curve, you know, there's a, there's a fraction of them who are like, yeah, every time it's never been an issue, not even once. There's a fraction of them who would say we have never agreed once on where to go on vacations when we've decided to go on vacations together. And then there's people in the middle where it's a little bit column A, a little bit column B, right? Where it's where it's kind of like, yeah, sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And so if if clients feel like they could fit into the nobody ever agrees or sometimes we don't agree category, then it I think it becomes more important to think about how are you going to sort of deal with those issues so that it's efficient you know people are actually getting to use the property there's not squabbling there are clear guidelines on on how to divvy up days among family members so everybody knows what the rules are they may not like the rules but hopefully at least they wouldn't be surprised by the outcome because the rules are clear those sorts of those sorts of weird interpersonal issues that come up among families especially when you have a, a property like a vacation home which you have to assume is going to also have some sort of sentimental value to everybody as well. So there's going to be a little bit of an emotional attachment to that property just to begin with right off the bat. So you want to have very clear guidance on how you're going to resolve any sort of issues relating to human beings agreeing on things about the property for which they have some emotional attachment. Yep. And with that sense, uh, you know, the, the sentimental aspect of it, you know, when you look at all the potential issues that can come up, one thing we do want to address too is how can the property be sold? You know, at a certain point, if no one is using the property, because maybe it is in Minnesota and no one really travels to Minnesota, it was just mom and dad's thing to do that every year, but it wasn't the kid's thing. Well then, okay, how are we going to make the decisions? What if one child says, no, mom and dad really wanted this. Let's keep it in the family. But again, it's property. We have to pay taxes on it every year. It's not just going to sit there free. 
uh, if we're not going to be really utilizing it, who gets to make the decisions to actually sell the property at the end of the day? So that's, again, another thing to consider. Um, just to put down, again, we can always put down, like you said, everyone can agree on it, but if everyone doesn't, let's find another option. Yep, exactly. The other, um, okay, so let me let me change the hypothetical on you just a little bit. Um, and again, you you brought this up, so I just want to make sure that we are we're kind of covering it. And that is, all right, now the hypothetical is I am going to, I live in Arizona, it's a community property state. I am going to go to a different state, say Colorado, non-community property state. I'm going to buy real estate there. I'm going to buy a vacation home there. Now, what's your kind of go-to advice for me on on how to go about doing that? Aside, you know, aside from the issues that we've been talking about, but sort of like mechanically how to do that. Yep. So that's a good question. And we've kind of alluded to this before in a previous podcast episode about community property. If anyone hasn't listened to that already, you should. Um, but I would then recommend an LLC. So a limited liability company. Um, so when you've got an LLC, that's, again, there could be minor differences in state law, but we don't have to worry about community property states and non-community property states when we're looking at an LLC. So when you've got an LLC, what you would do is you would transfer the title of the vacation home into the name of the LLC. So let's just call it the SAS Family LLC. And my beautiful property is going to be in the SAS Family LLC. Um, then from there, I can have uh, my husband and I as members, and then I can add my children as members of the LLC. Um, the operating agreement of the LLC is what's going to memorialize everything about if um, we get profits, like if we are renting out the property, how that's going to be distributed to each of the members, um, again, expenses, things like that. So it's same thing. We're putting everything in writing, but we're just going to do it in a different sort of vehicle. Yeah. And there are some, you know, we talked about some kind of tax benefits when you're coming from a community property state or potential tax benefits, I should say, when you're coming from a community property state, acquiring real estate in a non-community property state. Sometimes it's it's not necessary to do the LLC or or you know you're not going from community property to non-community property for example and it makes sense from an efficiency standpoint then to go ahead and use your trust to acquire those assets. But the point to that more broadly is just to have a, and we're talking about Americans here, okay, just to be totally clear for everybody, um but the the point there is that the way that you acquire the property, you want to do so through some vehicle, not in your name in an ideal world. Okay, so either your trust acquires the property or your LLC that you control, ideally under your trust, acquires the property. The reason being, and you mentioned this earlier too, uh, Rachel, if you don't do it that way, at some level, you may need to do a probate in that other state when somebody dies. And having a probate, especially if you're having a probate in multiple jurisdictions, so like your jurisdiction plus another jurisdiction, is a bit cumbersome. Sometimes there's sort of a, a condensed version that you can do under that state's law where you don't have to do a full-blown probate, but sometimes you can't get around it and you have to do a full-blown probate. In a state like uh, California, bless their hearts, um, probate is expensive. It's a pretty long procedure. It's quite formal. Um, in other states, it's not quite as formal or expensive. And so sometimes avoiding having to do multiple probate proceedings just saves you costs in the long run that are completely avoidable. Okay. Then the flip side of that, which we keep harping on uh, in these episodes, is you might be incapacitated but not dead. And if your name is on the title to real estate in another state, um, 
you may not, because you are now incapacitated but not dead, you may not be able to do anything with that property legally or your agents or the people trying to act for you may have a difficult time doing things for that property for you if it is not held under a trust or an inside an LLC that they can control through your trust. So using that trust structure or using that LLC structure to kind of reach out, get everything under the same umbrella is critical. It will save so many headaches and it will save so much time and expense that it is a thousand percent worth the upfront cost. Absolutely. There's so many cases you and I have worked on where it's just, we're dealing with one piece of property in Arizona and, and the uh, decedent, the person who had passed away lived in some other state and they just had a vacation property here. And now we have to open up a probate to deal with this one piece of property. It's like you said, it's expenses and costs that can be completely avoided. Um, one thing too, I want to add, which I get this question a lot is, well, why don't I just own it jointly with my kids? Right? So then when I pass away, my kids own it. And I, always, you know, we, we've also kind of touched on this issue in other episodes as well, but I really don't like that framework. I really don't like it. Um, the biggest reason why I don't like it is because it opens up that property to creditor claims. So when you own anything in your individual name, and if, even if you own it jointly with two people, so me and my brother, and my brother gets into a car accident and the car that he hit was a Ferrari, and now he's getting sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars, that piece of property, because it's held jointly by both of our names, is now going to be subject to the claims of creditors. And so if you've now got your name and all three of your children on it, all those creditors can now potentially gain access to that property. So I don't like that at all. There are so many other vehicles, like we've just explained, doing it through the trust, doing it through an LLC, that are way better vehicles for being able to give the property to your kids later on and have the protection from the creditors. Yeah, so, so, so true. And when you when you start expanding out the universe of potential creditors, you start adding in things like potential now ex-in-laws. Um, many times my clients will look me in the eye and say, well, we definitely don't want that. Uh, we definitely don't want the ex-in-laws to be able to come in and grab a piece of this property that might be the family vacation home. So yeah, to your point, if you own it jointly, all the joint owners e essentially under, under the sort of common law of joint ownership of real estate have equal right to own and occupy and use the property. Nobody has, you know, if they're in your example, like two or three equal owners, it's not like you get to use the Eastern half of the property and your brother can only use the Western half, right? You can't divide it that way. It's, it's quote unquote undivided. And therefore you each have equal right to use the entirety of the property. And then that extends to your creditors. Your creditors have equal right to the entirety of the property. So yeah, adding on owners as joint tenants or or tenants in common uh, is not always the best option. So yeah, a lot of reasons why that trust structure or that LLC structure almost always, I can't you know say absolutely, but almost always uh, makes the most sense. Okay, so now, so now let's change it just a little bit. Let's say the hypothetical is I want to go buy property for vacation in a foreign country, no longer in the Americas, but to a foreign country. Now, what do I do? All right. Now you definitely need to talk to your estate planning attorney <laughs> and you definitely need to look at having local counsel in whatever country you're going to acquire that property in. 
Um, first, you need to tell your, your just local here, estate planning attorney, because we need to definitely know that. Um, and we need to make sure uh, that that uh, property is going to be properly structured in that foreign country. Like you said, here we can use trusts and LLCs for most of the time. Um, with a foreign country, that might not be the case. Um, for example, in Mexico, we have a lot of clients who have, again, condos down there. Um, it's different. And so for people who especially have properties near the beaches, it's a fideicomiso, um, which is similar to a trust. That's the vehicle that you need to use to own the property. And so it really just depends on whatever foreign country that you're purchasing the property in. So we would reach out, have local counsel there kind of help us structure it. So again, we can avoid a probate. We don't want you owning that property in an individual name because then there could be a probate in that country. We've seen that before. Some of our clients were like, all right, we don't want a Hungarian probate to happen. Okay, we're going to try and avoid that. So let's let's talk to local counsel to see what is the best way uh, to structure it there. And we need to also do that in terms of taxes. Um, you know, here, some countries view LLCs differently than the U.S. views LLCs. They view trusts differently. So we really just need to see what exactly the laws are of that particular country to see what's the most tax efficient vehicle for you to own that property. And again, um, to just see what how, how we can avoid a probate in that country as well. Yeah, exactly. The answer is almost always slow down and get all the advice you need first. Don't go buy the property, then let all of your advisors know what you have done, because inevitably when that is uh, that is the case, it is very difficult and sometimes impossible to then unwind that transaction into the structure you would have wanted initially without paying tax. And most people do not want to pay tax that they otherwise would not need to pay. So therefore, it is almost always wiser to just get the advice up front, slow down just a little bit, and then do the transaction the right way. I know that slows things up. I know that the real estate industry does not like things to be slowed down. They want to sell you things and they want you to close quickly before you change your mind. But uh, doing things very quickly sometimes leads to bad results that can be avoided by just being a little bit more deliberate. Doesn't mean you need to wait years and years, just a little bit more deliberate, uh, getting the right advice and then pulling the trigger in a smart way. So that's my that's my two cents worth there. That's my bottom line for clients. As long as clients are doing things uh, in a well-informed, smart way, meaning they've at least been told how to do it the right way, whether they take my advice or not, that's what I want. I don't like them acting in ignorance when I can avoid it. 100% agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's doing things the right way is a lot more cheaper. It's a lot more faster than having to fix it when it's been done the wrong way. 100%. Yes, indeed. Overall, right over the life cycle of that asset or those people, it is is much quicker and much uh, much cheaper. All right, well, let's leave it there. Uh, lots of good tidbits in there. I know we could we could talk about this sort of thing all day long, but I'm sure everybody would stop listening. So We'll uh, we'll leave it there. As usual, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me and we'll do it again. Yeah, thank you. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there. <laughs>